This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, live listeners, and welcome, podcast listeners, at whatever time of day you're catching. My name is Emma Williams. Today, I'll be asking why teachers are so wedded to their job. I'll be interviewing the delightful Samantha McMahon. So stay tuned, think about teacher burnout. Why do we do it? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, welcome again. With temperatures set to soar once again this week, I do hope you are enjoying rather than dreading the weather and that you are free to use your hose as much as you wish. We are currently in the hoses permitted zone, but everyone is bracing themselves for a ban. Leadership race news. Rishi Sunak, I am told, plans to bring in artificial intelligence to reduce teacher workload. Very topical for what I will be talking about this morning. So clearly I jumped ship too early. Once uh, Rishi uh, wins the leadership race, he's going to solve all our problems with AI. We've got no more details on exactly what this will involve, but there's been a great deal of speculation on Edu Twitter. Meanwhile, Twitter archaeologists have found a tweet from Liz Truss dating back to December 2011. Yes, that's 2011. That says, next, let's replace number and shape in maths curriculum with proper terms like arithmetic and geometry. No idea what she was talking about there, but it just goes to show that politicians desperate for votes do tend to use education as a bit of a football, which really does beg the question why this is allowed, why it's so partisan and why schools and the education system is constantly the victim. So this morning, I'd like to take a look at just why the workload for many in teaching is so unsustainable. And this is inspired by the interview that I'm going to be sharing with you today with a tutor and business coach named Samantha McMahon, who, like myself, has left teaching to pursue alternatives. She's still using her skills as a teacher, uh, but she now runs her own business. I spoke to her a few weeks ago, and I was pretty shaken by some of what she had to say. Let me give a little bit of a taster of what I mean. Well, for anyone who's a teacher, what I'm about to say will probably sound quite dramatic. So when you walk away from it and you really do have time to think about it, you realise that this is the case. And I think the absolute core, the core problem, I think is that the expectations of the teaching profession is to put other people's children in front of your own, other people's lives in front of your own. And to me, that's what drives a lot of what leads to burnout or deep unhappiness. This whole line of it's for the children, but it's for the children is this emotive pull, which is how we end up overworking. Um, and in fact, it's so prevalent that, you know, I was a secondary school teacher. And when it was time for our appraisals, there was a line in all of our appraisal forms that stated that our students would achieve their target grades. And I actually refused to sign it until that wording was changed. But that element of your performance being assessed on someone else's shows how deeply entrenched that culture of putting ourselves last really is. You know, when I think about things that made me compelled to leave aside from my health, I realize that that's the core and it just manifests in loads and loads of different ways. It's only the only profession I've ever been in where your performance isn't your performance. Mm. And, you know, this whole it's for the children. That's how I ended up taking work on my honeymoon. You, you know, what? yeah, I took I was in the airport. I remember we had this kind of six hour layover. My poor husband carried a whole load of coursework in his backpack. And I sat there during the layover marking 
because I didn't think I had a choice. It was for the children. It was for my department. It was for my colleagues. It was so that they wouldn't have loads to do. It was for all of these reasons. And I put myself last because I was so embedded. Pretty powerful stuff there. And as you heard, I was quite shocked and surprised that Samantha had taken marking on her honeymoon. But then I found myself thinking back to my honeymoon. Uh, We had to take a date very late in August. And that gave us only a few days before I was due to go back to school. So I just took the two inset days that my school always had at the start of the academic year. And that meant that we didn't even have a week. We had five days. We had to pay for the week, obviously, because that's how a villa holiday worked, which is what we wanted. Uh, And I made sure that I was back home in time to start the school term. And looking back, I think, what was I doing? But at the time, I was absolutely convinced it was the right thing to do. So I'm starting to think that all of us that were in teaching and still are in teaching, it's almost like we're in some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome that we're absolutely convinced that we are indispensable and that we absolutely must do our job no matter what the the price we're paying. So you heard about Samantha taking marking on her honeymoon and another friend, also an ex-English teacher, and I think that is significant, told me the other day of her profound regret that she took marking with her on a very precious holiday when she had very limited time to spend with a family member. Now, I won't share the details, but it it truly broke my heart that she clearly felt she was not in a position to leave it behind. And she cites the same kinds of reasons that Samantha was talking about, that it's for the children, it's for your colleagues. So my interview with Samantha really got me thinking about the time I spent as an English teacher. Obviously, my subject is classics. And as it happens, the way my career has panned out, I've only ever taught Latin. I've only ever worked in the state sector and in schools that offer just Latin, no Greek, obviously. And as it happens, no classive or ancient history. So to earn my keep, my first job in my first school was 50% Latin. And my second job was advertised as part-time. I was cheeky enough to ring up and go, ah, how about I teach English as well? Uh, And so until I built up that job into what became a a full-time job, I had to teach English for at least 50% of my timetable. So I do have some insight into what it's like to be an English teacher. I taught English throughout secondary right up to GCSE, never taught A-level, thank God. But up to GCSE, it was tough enough. And I really felt the pressure that they're under. And I was always pretty popular with uh, the English department because I would defend them hotly because I honestly don't think anybody fully understands the pain of an English teacher's marking unless they have been there. It really is quite extraordinary. Now, something that I discuss in my interview with Samantha that I will share with you is the difference between coaching and mentoring. Now, she doesn't she doesn't like to get too hung up on labels. She feels that there isn't necessarily a concrete difference. The training I had when I was in school was very specific. Coaching was one thing. Mentoring was something else. We had a coaching program that I was asked to take part in as a coach, was given some what I look back on now as some deeply inadequate training uh, and and was set to uh, get on with it. And the coaching model was very much the person you're coaching comes up with their own solutions. But the people who were assigned to the coaching programme were, in many cases, people who really needed help, sometimes just because they were early on in their career or because they were struggling for all sorts of reasons, many of which we have all experienced at some point in our careers. One person that I was working with revealed to me quite early on in our sessions that he had been up all night marking. And that's when I immediately stepped out of what was sold to us as the coaching model. I felt that this person needed some really concrete guidance on the fact that that is not a sustainable way to manage your workload. 
also the dedication that this person was showing in the length of comments that they were making on students work was again completely unsustainable but has been encouraged in the system was directly encouraged by our school has been encouraged in every school i've heard of up until incredibly recently now a lot of schools thank the lord are moving away from this now and are finally beginning to realize that this kind of close individual lengthy written feedback for every single child that you teach it just isn't possible, unsustainable. It's not about being lazy. It's not about being unwilling to do your job. It's just about being realistic. So I'm, I've been really glad in the final years of my career to see that change, but I'm not sure our school was quite there. For example, it wasn't yet adopting whole class feedback. In my last couple of years, I just started to do it because <laughs> I by then had reached the point where I was pretty confident that uh, they wouldn't sack me and everything I'd read told me it was the way forward and so I started to move in that direction and I feel pretty sure that the school will will get there. Now of course this summer is the first year in a while when we've had external examinations which means that a lot of teachers have taken on or returned to professional marking responsibilities. And recently we've been hearing real horror stories about how teachers have been treated by the examination boards. Many of them haven't been paid yet. Many have had to pay their tax in a lump sum up front before being paid. Many have shared, frankly, horrific stories of the expectations set by those boards. It seems clear to me that they are in crisis too, as a direct result, in my opinion, of the diabolical pay. Markers are being paid on average about one pound per script. There's no incentive to mark slowly or carefully, other than the fact that if anomalies are picked up, you risk being given the sack. And actually, I remember when I marked for OCR, we were specifically told that if enough anomalies are picked up, you will be blacklisted and you'll never mark for them again. Matt Davis, who's a teacher in Worthing, and in fact, I, I tried to approach him to get him to speak on the show, but I think he's on holiday. Good for him. But he shared a tweet on Friday that went a bit crazy on Edu Twitter. He said, this is the last year I mark for an exam board. The pay is pathetic and simply nowhere near worth the time or the effort. And the CPD argument is just another falsehood. Exam boards receive plenty of money for their services, pay markers better. I completely agree with him. And him mentioning what he calls the CPD argument. And I've said this myself, you know, it's valuable CPD. You, you learn a great deal from marking professionally. The mark scheme is demystified for you. And I've said it myself, there is no replacement for that. It's really worth doing. But the more I've thought about it recently, I think people are right. You shouldn't have to do what is actually another paid professional job on top of your paid professional job to attain that knowledge. Exam boards could, should, and in some cases are putting on training that teachers can attend that does that exact same thing, demystifies the mark schemes and explains what they mean. You shouldn't have to mark professionally in order to gain access to that. Of course, it's all particularly galling when it's hard for teachers to comprehend exactly what exam boards have been doing with their time over the last couple of years. I mean, the brutal truth is we did most of their job for them in 2020 and in 2021. We tested the kids. We marked the kids' work internally. We moderated the kids' work internally. We set the grade boundaries. All of this dictated to us by government. One would have thought this was a good opportunity for exam boards to reflect on their systems and get all their ducks in a row for 2022. But the opposite seems to be true. It's like they've forgotten how to function. Certainly, from the number of comments I've seen from regular professional markers like Matt Davis, 
who swore never again, there does seem to be a genuine crisis brewing for 2023. I do suspect exam boards will not be able to find people willing to mark for the kind of pay that they've been offering thus far. So they'd better make contingency plans for that right now. I suspect, however, that they won't. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Let me introduce you now to Samantha, who spent many years as a classroom teacher and is now a tutor of English and also a business coach for other tutors. I came across Samantha online, I think about a year ago, and I've been really enjoying listening to her podcast on managing your own tutoring business. But the moment when I realized what a great guest she'd be for Teachers Talk Radio, was when I heard her as a guest on the Qualified Tutor podcast. In that, she alluded to the fact that she was basically driven out of teaching by the workload. So I decided I simply had to find out more. I reached out to her and we had a lovely conversation back in April. So you might wonder why I'm only sharing this with you now. Well, end of April, start of May was when my own tutoring business really started to take off. And that's why I had to quit my Saturday show, uh, Saturday mornings being a super popular time for people who need a tutor. I held on to our conversation and I knew that it would be great to share once my school had broken up for holidays and I was able to start my new show in the new slot, which is right here, right now. So this is me and Samantha back in April talking workload hi there hey samantha lovely to meet you at last lovely oh it's yeah it's really nice to meet you i saw i was checking out your instagram so thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me to this oh my my tiny instagram account it always starts small it's got to start somewhere i was interested in your journey from teacher to tutor i listened to your podcast with qualified tutor recently in that you mentioned that that journey but you didn't go into any details so i thought we could explore that for teachers talk radio if that's okay yeah sure um, because obviously something that we talk about a lot on teachers talk radio is teacher well-being the fact that the profession is is losing teachers hemorrhaging them at the moment and it sounded from what you said like you were someone who felt the need to get out of teaching is that right yeah, I, I had to get out. I didn't even, you know, it wasn't even really a choice in the end. I had to get out for my health, my physical health, as well as my emotional health. 
you know, I still do something I love because I'm a tutor. So I get to teach on my terms now. And, you know, it's been really transformational. It's been life changing, actually. But yeah, I, I definitely I definitely reached a point where I had to leave for various reasons. You know, when you leave the profession, you get the headspace to truly reflect. Now I, I can really see all the different red flags that I didn't perhaps recognize at the time. What kind of red flags? What do you mean? When I look back, one of the things was, I remember getting to the point where teaching was getting in the way of the other jobs I needed to do. And, you know, when you're on that hamster wheel, when you're in the thick of it, you really don't have time to stop and reflect and think. You just have to push on and you just have to get through. You just have to get through the day sometimes. So those sorts of realizations, I only truly understood after I left because by walking away, I was able to decompress and deinstitutionalize, which was mm -hmm. huge. It took me about a year, I would say. And even now, you know, five years in uh, of running my own business, I'm still learning and I'm still evolving and I'm still finding ways that I work instead of things, uh, ways I think I have to work, for example, having a timetable or just those things you get really used to and you feel like you need. Obviously, you, you were in business prior to teaching, is that right? So what, what attracted you to teaching in the first place, do you think? I, I was in the corporate, I, I worked corporately, I was a business trainer, I moved into being a project manager, and I did that for about seven years. And I really enjoyed what I did, but I do come from a family of teachers and I did have it in my mind. I had this kind of perhaps naive thought that later on in life, you know, when I have children and, you know, I'll be a teacher and I'll have all the school holidays off. And, you know, and I also got to the point where, you know, when you're working corporately, you often feel like you're this tiny, tiny little part in this huge machine. And I suppose I've always been an educator. I enjoy supporting people. But I suppose as cheesy as this sounds, I did get to a point where I felt like I wanted to make a real impact. And I knew I could do that by working with young people. And that's exactly what the job gave me. You know, I loved being a teacher to this day. It's the best job I've ever had. So it's really sad that I had to walk away from it. Do you think there are things that could be done and should be done to make the hang on to to people like you I think that's a really that's a really tough one I think because yes I think there is lots that can be done but how it can be done is questionable because you know I think that there can be a lot of pressure on SLT or a lot of blame on SLT saying that you know you guys are the ones that can make this change you can make teachers feel more valued but SLT also have a job to do and the, the targets that they have are perhaps not always dictated by them. When I think about the profession as a whole, I feel like it needs gutting. I feel like the foundations need to be rebuilt. But of course, that's like rebuilding a plane while it's in the air. So, <laughs> so whether it can be done, how fast it can be done, I don't know. And of course, little old me isn't privy to the real conversations that are happening with influencers and decision makers so I probably also don't know the full landscape so yeah I think there's there's absolutely loads that can be done from right down to a cultural point of view you know there are many things about the culture it wasn't just workload that made me walk away yeah that's interesting so what would you say is wrong with the culture or is unfortunate about the culture in teaching well, for anyone who's a teacher, what I'm about to say will probably sound quite dramatic. So when you walk away from it and you really do have time to think about it, you realise that this is the case. And I think the absolute core, the core problem, I think, is that the expectations of the teaching profession is to put other people's children in front of your own, other people's lives in front of your own. And to me, that's what drives a lot of what leads to burnout or deep unhappiness. This whole line of it's for the children, but it's for the children is this emotive pull, which is how we end up overworking. Um, and in fact, it's so prevalent that, you know, I was a secondary school teacher. And when it was time for our appraisals, there was a line in all of our appraisal forms that stated that our students would achieve their target grades. And I actually refused to sign it 
until that wording was changed. But that element of your performance being assessed on someone else's shows how deeply entrenched that culture of putting ourselves last really is. You know, when I think about things that made me compelled to leave aside from my health, I realized that that's the core and it just manifests in loads and loads of different ways. It's only the only profession I've ever been in where your performance isn't your performance. Mm. And, you know, this whole, it's for the children. That's how I ended up taking work on my honeymoon. You, you know, yeah, I took, I was in the airport. I remember we had this kind of six hour layover. My poor husband carried a whole load of coursework in his backpack. And I sat there during the layover marking because I didn't think I had a choice. It was for the children. It was for my department. It was for my colleagues. It was so that they wouldn't have loads to do. It was for all of these reasons. And I put myself last because I was so embedded. You have a choice in the profession. You can either be an excellent teacher or you can be a slacker. And I say slacker in quote marks, because to be an excellent teacher, you need to be willing to essentially sacrifice so much of yourself. Whereas if you leave at your contractually agreed time, I mean, it's frowned upon in most schools. Mm-hmm. I remember going to an interview where the head of department said to me how she expected staff to stay till in, until six o'clock. And I laughed because I thought she was joking. And she looked at me and said, why are you laughing? And I said, well, isn't there a problem if people can't get their work done by six? And she said, do you want to be successful in this profession? Yeah, I mean, awkward. it was very awkward. <laughs> but, but you know, I walked away that, you know, I got to interview stage and I just very politely declined because it wasn't the culture. It wasn't the type of school or head of department I particularly wanted to work with. But if you do leave at a decent time, you can't, you, you can't get all your work done. You know, yeah. you, can't, you can't. When the, when the children leave, the second part of your day starts. So there is so much that that needs gutting. And when you think about it, it's really overwhelming. It's very easy for me to sit here and blame the profession, blame the school, blame the department, blame SLT. But again, from, from that experience of actually walking away from the profession, not taking a break, not going to another school, I have realized that I also need to take responsibility. There are things I could have done very differently that would have at least made an impact. It wouldn't have changed everything, but it would have had a positive impact. It wasn't just the market, because do you know what? I mark now, I still mark, but mm. I love it because it's meaningful. And I get to mark in a way that truly benefits the children I teach. But I hated marking when I was a teacher because I had to do it because someone was gonna check my books. And I had to use a yellow form because we needed to prove that we were using, I don't know, three-way dialogue. Even when I had nothing to constructively say, I still had to say something. So this whole let's be seen to be doing it for me, not only is pointless and it adds so much to our workload, but I always felt a bit like, why did you hire me if you don't trust me? If you need to check that I'm giving feedback, if you need to check how I'm giving feedback, why did you hire me in the first place? And I know it wasn't personal because everyone had to do it, but that whole feeling of not really feeling valued you know, really boils down to a really granular level. And it Mm. can be things like book looks that that makes us feel like we're being monitored and watched all the time. Things like that certainly grind you down, especially when you think, I've been at my current school for 11 years. I've not once failed a book check, whatever that would mean. You know, I've always had nothing but praise. And you think, do you not think that I I can be trusted now? And I, I wouldn't mind if somebody dropped in occasionally just, picked up a book and had a look and you know sort of spot checks but I think this sort of notion of every book must be gathered in and we're having a formal check and you'll get a piece of paper a lot of schools have made moved away from it and uh, I think those schools that are still doing it need to ask themselves why but there's a lot of that I think in the profession there is a lot of tick boxing Mm. and and that's where you know that was also a deal breaker for me as to why I would not go back to teaching at least not now, because I feel like actually this whole, there's this whole culture of it's for the children and the teachers who are on the front line, they really are doing it for the children. But when you look at all the policies and the procedures, it feels like it's not for the children anymore. Mm. It's for organizations like Ofsted. 
it's you know it's for data it's to show people it's you know schools have become this big pr machine we 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 used to have these two members of staff who were amazing you know if a child turned up i don't know with a knife let's say we would press a button on the register they would come and collect them while we're managing the rest of the class one of them got made redundant one so we had one person supporting a school of over a thousand children but the glossy brochures were still being printed there was still a person whose job was to do the displays in the corridor it tells you where the priority is it's about pr it's about let's be seen to be doing all these things but at the real level where it's really for the children it often doesn't work i'm generalizing here i know that i'm only basing this on my specific experience and there are many schools who do things differently or perhaps a little bit better but that was my experience in a number of schools and it is a huge reason why I wouldn't go back. That starts to touch on, I wanted to ask you if behaviour was, was a reason that you wouldn't want to go back either. I've suddenly found that I'm finding teenage back chat increasingly difficult to put up with. And I know it's me that's changed, not them. That I, yeah. I fully acknowledge that. I'm finding it is grinding me down to have to constantly have those conversations. and. And I've got, again, various views on why there is so much answering back in many schools. But is behaviour something that you found wearing? Uh, yes and no. I actually really, really enjoyed working with the children who struggled with behaviour. And I was quite effective with that. I, I built some really nice relationships with them and I was able to support them. But the part that did bother me, that did grind me down, was the trail of paperwork that followed every conversation or every incident. I would have logged it on the system. You know, one incident requires three actions. And when you work in a school where behavior is an issue, that's, again, it's, it's just not sustainable. So yeah, behavior did grind me down, but not because of the behavior. It was because of what I had to do. That's really interesting. So yeah, I'm a big fan of systems, but I totally agree that they need to be sustainable. And one of the things I really kick off against is when, whenever one is imposed that's too complicated or, or and therefore unsustainable, because that's the problem. I think systems help teachers support each other. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, if, if it's too onerous and complicated, you're just fighting a losing battle. And, and what ends up happening is that teachers start to do exactly what you did, which is subvert the system because it's too onerous. And then that undermines the whole system. So why have the system in the first place? Yeah, you know, it, it becomes negative, entirely negative. Does, you know, you, you asked me earlier what I think kind of schools can do. That's something that's doable because that's down to culture. That is down to the message you get from your head about policies and procedure that look it's there to support you you're the professional do what you think is best in that situation and will support you that mm. that can be said i think that's hugely important i think a really important message is that teachers will be supported about the decisions that they make and i think again one of the things that grinds teachers down is is that not happening for example being asked to write great long statements every time you've issued a sanction or I was recently told that I had to email the parent every time I issued a behaviour point. The online system is, is our method of communication. I shouldn't have to write an essay as well on exactly why I gave the yeah. behaviour point. And again, not sustainable, just undermining the teacher. Yeah, and of course, you know, liaising with parents can sometimes be really effective. But the point of this is teachers, as the professionals, as the people who actually know these students they should be in the lead of deciding mm. what's best in a situation we're not always going to get it right we're human and we have structures in place to support us like heads of departments and heads of years and so there are people we can speak to and we can get second opinions if you like but for there to be this kind of construct that's a blanket rule across the board it's never really going to work in any industry where you are dealing with human beings. So do you think that's one of the things that works for you more now working as a, as a tutor? Because it sounds like you're very much about building relationships with individuals. So perhaps 
tutoring was always going to be a better fit for you maybe yeah I mean it's how I it's how I train adults and it's how I how I work, work with students I don't do formulas I remember when I first left uh the profession and my first thought when I was tutoring was how about a scheme of work like how do I know where they're at and <laughs> you know how do I assess them and how do I track progress and then all of that went in the window I start my lessons with what would you like to do today what are you doing at school how was your day and then we're in the middle of a task and they'll say do you know what I'm really nervous about this that and the other and we talk about that we swerve because that's really important to their confidence and how they're feeling it's it's a team effort very few of them call me miss they call, they call me by my first name, which which also makes that difference. We're in it together. Mm. I'm not the boss. You don't have to follow what I'm doing. And, you know, I don't do any lesson prep. And it's not because I'm lazy. It's because there's no point. Mm. Because I don't want to pre-decide what they need. I want them to be part of that conversation and part of that dis- discussion. It all sounds really idealistic. And it is. It's great. But I know that as a teacher, when you're in a room full of 35 students, that's not possible. And that's the nature of it. You know, that's not me criticizing the profession. It's just a different beast. It's a different environment. You know, so yeah, I am very much about the students and I work very closely with families as well when they need the support. And um, I certainly enjoy that side of teaching. I like the fact that I can teach in that way. But when I compare it to classroom teaching, because I also loved being a classroom teacher and I loved working in a school and in that community, the, the things that I probably love more now is doing things on my terms, like what I said about the marking and, you know, things like progress. You know, I celebrate progress rather than results. And that's not really what you're allowed to do at school. I tried, you know, I would tell, tell my GCSE students to forget about their target and predicted grades to ignore what I wrote on their report because I did it because I had to and um, to focus on doing their absolute best. And, you know, the result was that over 80% of my GCSE students exceeded their target grades because it was no longer a ceiling. It was no longer a, you know, yeah, once I've achieved that, I'm done. So it, it worked, it really worked and it boosted their confidence. And I, I suppose with some students, it fostered a bit of a love for learning as well, which of course is really important as an adult. And I completely agree about tutoring and teaching being very different and with absolutely with lesson prep. It's really interesting coming now coming into it and planning to do it as as my full time profession rather than on the side. And I've heard a lot of tutors talk about it's really important to plan your lessons. And I find that really surprising because to me, the whole definitive difference is you start with the student, which you cannot do as a teacher with it, like you say, a class of 35. But the whole point of tutoring is the only prep I do is I look at my notes from the previous session. So I I do notes at the end of each session to write down what what happened, where we were, you know, anything that arose out of the session and a possible thought about where to go next time. Yeah. But like you said, that that quite often goes out the window. But for me, that's the only prep that needs doing because the whole point is you start with the student and they're, their needs, their wants, their what holes in the wall they've they've got. And that's what makes it so powerful. Mm-hmm. That's what's yeah. what's so different about it. Yeah, I'm the same as you. That's that that's the only they're the only notes I really make. I, I teach back to back. I have I, I'm an online tutor and my next student is in the waiting room while I'm finishing off, you know, one lesson. My prep happens in real time. I don't prep beforehand. So I'm making quick notes about what we covered while they're doing a task. And then I refer to the next one. I have it lined up for the next student. But I think the thing to remember is that, you know, a lot of tutors have come from a teaching background and they're at different stages of that journey. And some of them haven't completely deinstitutionalized. I know I mentioned that earlier, but it's <laughs> the only term I can really think of that, that kind of covers it. They still haven't got out of that mindset that a lesson needs to be planned it needs a starter a main and plenary you know they haven't they haven't got <laughs> yeah. out of that yet but they will they will mm. as they realize how much more fluid tutoring is and then of course it does depend on the subject and the level you know a level teaching does require a little bit more prep I don't teach up to a level I teach some group classes that requires a little bit of prep but my one-to-ones no I don't do any because I just have a bank of resources I use them as springboards, so I very rarely run a PowerPoint presentation. Sometimes I freestyle. So some, you know, a student might say, 
could you help me with Macbeth? Can we do a bit of exam practice? I haven't done it for a while. So we make up a question, grab a page from the book, grab a whiteboard, and we just do it together. We work through mm. it together. So it is, it is very different. And that is why tutoring is powerful. But everyone's different and everyone's at different stages of their journey. And, and certainly I think there's a difference as well. I have on occasion tutored somebody, obviously in my subject, it's the sort of subject where um, sometimes a student wants to study it and it's not taught in their school. So I have, for example, taken a student through the GCSE. And that is quite different because then mm. you do have to, you actually do have to kind of have a scheme of work because yeah, you, you have to yeah. go, okay, I need to be at this point by this stage, otherwise we're in trouble. Um, so that that is a little different. And I certainly think sole tutoring, you know, where you're taking, you are responsible for taking that child through an exam is quite a different gig from support tutoring. Um, and I think I prefer the latter for that reason, uh, because th th there's basically no limit to what you can achieve. I and mean, I've taken students from the bottom of their class to the top. And I don't think there is anything more empowering than that. I just uh, that's why I found it such a thrilling yeah. job to do, because what a thing to do to take that yeah. child who hated your subject, really struggling it. And then and then they become the best in the class. I mean, that's the dream, right? You know, isn't mm. that why we all went into the profession? It's just that our jobs end up getting diluted with paperwork, <laughs> you know, <laughs> put quite simplistically. Um, and yeah, that's exactly it. That is, that's why the job is, is so rewarding. That's why tutoring is rewarding. That's why teaching is rewarding. It's when you see your impact that you've, that you've made. It's a really privileged position. And you're absolutely right, you know, supporting children where you are their primary source of education is, is a different gig. And I work with a few home educated students, but I still have learned how not how to do it without a scheme of work in terms of it's a lot looser. I, I focus on mastery and I focus on skills development and knowledge development. So for me, they are my checkpoints and I know how it's taught in school, but I think, well, actually a different schedule is going to work for us. Mm. So just as an example, this is very English focused. Typically, my students will learn half of the poems, let's say seven of the poems from the anthology in year 10, the other half in year 11. Now, for me, I work with some year nine students. I know what poems they're going to learn. I give them a head start because that is perhaps the hardest one to really remember. So when I work with home educated students and they join me in year 10, that's one of the first things I teach or the first thing I'll teach is Shakespeare. Either way, we will tackle the, the thing that I think they'll find the hardest first so that they've got the longest time to let that marinate and to practice. So I, I, I still don't have a fixed scheme of work if I am the primary educator, but I do have those natural checkpoints in the year. I have targets as to when I would need to finish certain texts so they can start with exam practice. And as a tutor, you do have that flexibility. So I've recorded videos for them. If I feel like the lesson time just isn't enough time, we're gonna fall behind. I've recorded videos and they do some work independently that forms part of their homework. So you've got this, you've got all this flexibility and that flexibility should also be there in the profession because we're talking about transformational teaching. We're talking about learning transference. We're not talking about delivering a message and then job done, let's tick that off the list, that lesson's finished, we don't need to revisit it until there's an exam. That kind of flexibility I would love to see in the teaching profession. I think it would make the job so much more exciting as well. Well, tell me, um to finish a little bit more about what, what else you do, because I know obviously you're a, a coach for other tutors as well as a tutor your, yourself. Did that stem from your original background as a, as a business coach? Yeah, it did. It was, you know, I've, I've reached, uh, the point that I've reached at the moment is that, you know, I've, I'm a qualified business trainer and I've worked with a lot of different organizations. I've been a teacher who has stepped out of the classroom to run my own business. I actually set up my first business when I was 22 and I ran it for 17 years on the side while I was working full time because I always wanted to be a business owner. That's definitely an been an aspiration of mine, but I grew up with that mentality that you can't rely on your own business. It's not stable. It's not safe. And so I always pushed ahead and had this kind of plan B or a plan A, whichever way around, <laughs> whichever way around they were. So when I blend all of that together and the fact that I do work specifically in the education industry, I, I work with other education businesses 
And the principle I follow, the thing I always talk about is I help people design businesses because I don't, I don't know about you, but my, when I think about my career, I was always thinking about my next move. What did I want my next promotion to be? What did I want my next role to be? And my life came second. My life just fit around that because that was my aspiration. But when I left in 2017, I made a promise to myself that I would never do that again. Instead, I would decide what I wanted my life to look like, how I wanted to live. And I would make my career fit that, give me that. So I worked backwards from that. And that's essentially what I help other educators do. Um, and that can be in the form of helping teachers form an exit strategy. It can be in the form of, you know, if they want to set up a business, it can be in the form of, you know, I've worked with some teachers who they want to leave, but they don't really know what to do. And they think, well, I might as well cheat it, but their heart's really not in it. So I help them explore other possibilities. And then I work with existing education companies and tutors with kind of almost everything, really, their business strategy, social media marketing, whatever problems they're having. So I do work in quite a versatile way. And I think, and this is something we learn as teachers, isn't it, that it's really powerful to ask the right questions rather than telling people what to do. So I don't offer formulas or five steps to do this. It's all question led and it's so that people can design something that fits them. Did you experience any coaching in the teaching profession? Because I have to say, I feel it's something that's done quite badly in the teaching profession. I think we're a bit behind business. Yeah, well, well, coaching, I, I didn't really receive coaching. I mean, there was there's the whole mentoring relationship when you're an NQT that I that I experienced. But beyond that, no, not really. I received training. You know, I went on training courses like for mid leadership and stuff. And weirdly enough, in the corporate world and in the teaching world, the training isn't very strong. And yet we're really good teachers. We know all the different ways, assessment for learning, all the different methods, differentiation as a teacher. But my experience has been when I've then undertaken training, those principles aren't followed. There is no differentiation and there is no assessment for learning and there is no checking in on knowledge later on. There's no support without applying it. It's actually the corporate style of training. So mm. I find that really ironic. But you specifically asked about coaching. I've, I've never experienced coaching. I've only experienced mentoring um, as an NQT. We've had a couple of goes at the coaching model in schools that I've worked in. Um, and it, it was a bit one time in particular it was a bit of a disaster because they wanted coaching, but then they then they told people that they had to do it, which is never a good idea with most <laughs> things. Um, and they, they they chose people who they felt were struggling. And the coaching model really doesn't didn't work for someone like that, because the coaching model is about developing. And if someone's already snowed under drowning, I ended up completely stepping out of the role and, and completely switched say, right, coaching is not appropriate for this person. I'm going to say, okay, you need to do this. Stop doing that. Stop staying up all night to do your marking, you know, and stop directing them a, a bit more. I mean, coaching to me is, is what you ask for when you, you're in a position that you want and you want to grow as opposed to you need help. I think there's an overlap. I think that the coaching industry has really evolved and there is a bit of an overlap almost with therapy. There are many coaches who, and, and it's dangerous in a way, in some ways, because mm. they're not qualified to actually deliver therapy. And no. there are many people who call themselves a coach who aren't a qualified coach either. <laughs> and I'm not saying that qualifications mean everything, but there are certain principles that are really important to learn as a foundation. Um, but in my world, there are many teacher coaches who specifically work with teachers who are experiencing burnout, who are unhappy, who need that help with navigating a really difficult situation. Not necessarily that they want to leave, they just want to improve their situation. And so there are coaches who will work with people who need help. So I think I think there's a, there is a crossover and it just depends on context. And nowadays, regardless of the situation you're in, you can probably find a coach for that situation. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think I saw them as two quite separate 
models, but that may be again because the training was so poor and and we weren't really, you know, we weren't given sufficient guidance as to as yeah. what the role was about. I think I mean look I, I I don't really get hung up too much on terminology I know some people kind of like a very clear distinction between what's a mentor what's a what's a coach what's a this what you know but ultimately there's 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 always going to be overlaps like you know I'm a tutor but I don't just teach the academic mm. I support families now I don't know what the label is for that so I think there's always going to be overlaps and I think that the true value of whatever form of support you get is that it needs to be really tuned in to what you need at that particular time. And if someone asks you a question and you navigate it towards a solution, there's always gonna be a higher chance of that solution working because it was your idea and it's absolutely right for you. So for me, regardless of what label it has, any form of support has to start there. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me it's been really interesting thank you thank you no I've really I really enjoyed that thank you for having me on and it's very exciting that you're moving into tutoring full-time soon I'm very excited yeah I feel the time has come um lots of reasons some of them some of them to do with have, having had enough um mm. but some of them just also to do with you know I want a new challenge I want to see if I can do this yeah yeah can... yeah Oh, well, yeah. lovely to meet you in person. Yeah, you too. You too. And thanks for inviting me again. That was really good. It's an absolute pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care. So it really was a pleasure to chat with Samantha and still in touch with her and uh, will be so for some time. She's absolutely fantastic. She was talking about meaningful marking. Now, I'm not sure. I think I'm 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 not quite out of the grind yet. So I don't feel I'm quite there with feeling hugely positive about marking, but I can see that I'm going to get there because it is completely different. So for example, at the moment I'm working with an A-level student and I might set her something to do and she will send me a screenshot. She might email it yesterday afternoon. She she WhatsApped it. Oh, let's have a look. So I simply replied with the corrections. They were sentences from English into Latin. Sometimes I simply replied with the correct answer. And she would respond saying, well, hang on, I thought it was this because. And we would enter into a conversation with her asking why something was so. Now, that kind of feedback loop is the dream. And that is, of course, what many schools have tried to move towards. And there are systems such as whole class feedback that can map that model onto a large class. But the reality is it really, really works in the one to one setting. And that's when it is at its most powerful. So I can certainly see that I might get to the point like Samantha has, where I see marking as a pleasure, wherein it is purely done for the right reasons and it isn't done to, as she puts it, tick boxes. I think what she said about teaching being the only profession where your performance isn't, your performance is really powerful as well. Certainly being judged on students' results, it's a really tricky one because of course we have to be accountable and of course we have to do everything in our power to make sure that students achieve their best and of course if we're consistently failing to do that on a grand scale questions need to be asked again i think in better systems in some schools a move towards a much broader model where you're looking at tracking patterns overall that is much healthier but when i think back for example in my previous school which was a very high achieving grammar school the system there was that the whole department, not the head of department, the whole department, every single member would meet with the head to review the A-level results. GCSE were looked at briefly, but the focus, unsurprisingly, was on A-level. And it was basically a grilling session. So the head would pick you out and say, for example, uh, Jessica, she got a B and her target grade was an A. What went wrong there? 
and you had to answer. So each of us had to prep for that meeting like a head of department perhaps does for uh, meetings that I know in many schools still take place. It was frankly horrendous. And I think I'm still scarred from the experience. Samantha also talked about the fact that you can be an excellent teacher versus an, in scare quotes, slacker. And by slacker, she explained she meant basically not sacrificing yourself to the job. And I think she's right. Again, there has been this huge culture of expectation that you, you do sacrifice yourself and that that's what's demanded. And one of the things that worries me the most is that pressure is put onto new teachers, our, our ECTs, and it's often piled onto the young. You know, well, you're not married, you don't have children, so you, you, know, you should be sucking this up. No, everyone is entitled to a work-life balance. I don't think it's the preserve of people who have chosen to have children. I don't think it's the preserve of people who've reached a certain age. Everyone is entitled to a work-life balance. And given the rate at which the profession is hemorrhaging these uh, young joiners, we need to think about that really, really hard. And I loved her analogy of gutting teaching. The problem with that would be that it would be like rebuilding an aircraft while it's in the air. And of course, again, this brings us back to what I started my show with, where I was being a little bit flippant about Rishi Sunak's proposals for education should he get the gig of prime minister. Um, English and maths up to 18 for compulsory for all students. Okay, I can see there are arguments for that, moving towards perhaps more of an EBAC model. But where's he going to get the teachers from? I mean, seriously, this can't happen overnight. This has got to be a really long-term project. You can't simply deconstruct and reconstruct things like that. The same thing, sorts of things happen all that have happened with modern foreign language teaching. That's kicked around like a political football. One minute the government think it's hugely important, the next minute they realise it's quite challenging to get students the grades in it, so they change their mind. If they decide it's important, they need to look back on the fact that they haven't got enough students trained up to doing MFL at degree level who are able and willing to teach MFL in schools. You can't do this sort of thing overnight. You have to plan for it. And it's something they seem to forget constantly. Well, it's nearly time for me to close the show, but I just want to flag up what I'll be doing next fortnight, which is interviewing Dr. Paul Penn, who is a lecturer in psychology and the author of The Psychology of Effective Studying, How to Succeed in Your Degree. And I had a revelatory discussion with him, again, some several weeks ago. And again, he's been really patient while my life has resettled into its new rhythm. But honestly, the insight that Paul shares, it's 22 karat gold, 24, is it 22, 24? Anyway, it's a high carat rating of gold and totally worth waiting for. So I'm gonna share with you a little snippet. And in this snippet, Paul explains how he discovered not only that undergraduates were resistant to advice on how to study, but that to some extent, they had a point because the advice was anecdotal, piecemeal, and not presented in a manner that was worthy of students at that level. I don't like the term study skills precisely because it tends to suggest a kind of very remedial approach. It tends to be very divorced from evidence. It's just usually people that are very well-meaning and not always wrong, but pontificating or talking from experience and anecdotes. If we're saying to students that when you're at university, you have to have a level of academic rigor, then they will expect that of us when we're talking about the most important thing, which is how to learn. And I just didn't see that. It was almost like people were trying to spare the audience of the, the research and the evidence and all the good stuff. And I couldn't figure that out. So I very quickly started, stop calling it study skills and said, look, it's the application of psychology to studying, or this is what psychology has to say about how to learn effectively. Uh, and that started to, to, to break through the resistance a little bit more. And when I started giving the lectures and, and the kind of the word got out, people were, were a lot more interested 
So do join me next fortnight to hear more from Paul, who has already had an influence on the advice that I'm giving to Key Stage 5 students. So I'll be here with him on August the 22nd, but until then, have fun in the sun. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.